listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Hey listeners, Labor Know Your Rights will be changing our host in the near future. We have a new RSS feed with a slight change in our name to Labor Know Your Rights V2 for version 2. We did this so we could check out our new host while maintaining our old host on a temporary basis. All our past episodes are available by searching for our new name on the application you use to get our podcast now. In a couple of months, you will want to be using the new name as we will be losing the current RSS feed. I apologize for the inconvenience, but Phil, our new host, has better tools and should make our podcast better. This series will be on the Kennedy Urban Bill, better known by its final name of the Lundrum Griffin Bill. After the last series, which mentioned several labor reform laws, I felt it was important to discuss these laws. I came across a lot of information on this bill in particular, which I felt was important to discuss how this set of reforms were brought about. As this set of reforms were very controversial. On January 20th, 1959, Senator John Kennedy introduced in the Senate on behalf of himself and Senator Sam Urban a bill providing for the reporting and disclosure of certain financial transactions and administration of trusteeships by labor organizations and employers to prevent abuse in the administration of the trusteeship by labor organizations to provide standards in elections of officers of labor organizations. In 1958, Candy co-sponsored a bill with the Republican Senator Ives, a much milder labor reform bill which the AFL-CIO endorsed and opposed by employer groups because it contained no restriction on union secondary boycott practices and compulsory unionism and it imposed reporting requirements on employers for expenditures on labor relations. 
when the bill passed the Senate by 88 to 1, but when the bill was referred to the House Committee on Education and Labor Representatives, Graham Barden, Democrat, North Carolina, made it clear it would die in committee. The obvious reason since he was for strict labor reform was that 1958 was an election year for Congress and not a good year to introduce a controversial bill. Senator Barry Goldwater, Republican from Arizona, a long proponent of positions held by management groups, accused Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn, Democrat from Texas, of obstructing the bill for fear the House committee would make the bill more effective. Neither party was strongly in favor of a labor bill in 1958. The interest in this bill, scratch that, the interest in a labor reform bill only rose to that level in 1959 due to the release of the first interim report of the McClellan Committee in March 1958 which stimulated public opinion of the need for labor legislation. The Republicans blamed the failure of the bill passing on the Democrats who controlled Congress, and the Democrats pointed out the bill was killed by Republican votes when it finally reached the floor of the House. The vote against the bill on August 18, 1958 was 198 to 190 with the majority made up mainly of Republicans and Southern Democrats who opposed the bill because they were not allowed time under the rules to amend and stiffen the bill's reform provisions. The AFL-CIO was for the bill so much that they appealed for passage. The McClellan Committee, officially known as the Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, under its chairman, John McClellan, Democrat, Arkansas, was assisted by JFK's brother, Committee Special Counsel Robert Kennedy. They conducted well-publicized hearings for two and a half years, from 1957 into 1959, and produced many allegations of misconduct in labor-management relations. George Mooney, president of the AFL-CIO, admitted that he had not imagined the situation was so bad. The committee heard 1,526 witnesses in 270 hearings. They published 46,156 pages of testimony, two interim reports on its findings. These reports showed many incidents of corruption, violence, and racketeering. Most of the testimony concerned misconduct by union officials, especially the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Though the use of union busting, labor relations consultants by management personnel was also highlighted, the newspapers had months of headlines on these scandals. But by far, televised hearings were far more effective on affecting public opinion. These typically went like this. An individual known to be involved with the syndicate had police records and background read out and questioned on their union affiliations. The committee members would ask them questions about alleged criminal actions or unethical practices in labor management matters, questions which brought 
outrage denials from the witnesses are more often a monotonous repetition of taking the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. The committee looked into the handling of union funds, especially pensions and welfare money. They proved to the public that there was many irregularities involving various Teamsters locals, including the International's president, Dave Beck, who had helped themselves to the union treasury. This resulted in appointment of monitors by a federal district court to, re to direct reform of this nation's largest and most powerful union. These reports reached and informed the public, the press, management, union members, and Congress of the urgent need for better labor laws. Another background issue that must be kept in mind during the, this time was the long bitter contract negotiations struggle between the major U.S. steel companies and the United States Steelworkers Union. The negotiations and propaganda by both sides throughout the 1959 congressional session and was the most important daily news as the July 1, 1959 strike date neared. The steel industry was the most important industry with giant plants, hundreds of thousands of employees, high wages, big profits caused an urgency to the issue of new labor laws. Many involved seen this from a political viewpoint. Senator Kennedy's ambitions to be the 1960 Democratic nominee influenced his sponsoring of this bill. He needed the stature but also had to have a bill that would not antagonize either labor or management. The Kennedy-Urban bill would give him name recognition, publicity, and a happy public. Others who had political motives is Lyndon Johnson, Democrat from Texas, Senate Majority Leader as such responsible for the entire Democratic legislative program, who was known as a Southern conservative and having ambitions for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1960 also. This was the summer of 1959. Twenty-two other congressional sessions of Congress had considered labor legislation and had failed to pass one since the Taft-Hartley bill in 1947. When Senator Kennedy introduced the bill, given the title S-505, it was passed onto the Committee on Labor and Public Welfare who passed it on to the Subcommittee on Labor. Kennedy was the chairman of this subcommittee. The other members were Pat McNamara, Democrat from Michigan, Wayne Morse, Democrat from Oregon, Jennings Randolph, Democrat from West Virginia, Barry Goldwater, Republican from Arizona, Abrett Dirksen, Republican from Illinois, and Winston Prouty, Republican from Vermont. They held hearings on this bill and five other labor reform proposals, hearing testimony from 22 witnesses, statements for the record received from 35 people representing labor organizations, 21 from management groups, and several groups representing the public interest. Major witnesses include Godfrey Schmidt, a New York attorney acting as one of three monitors of the Teamsters. Professor Archibald Cox, Harvard Law School and authority on labor legislation, who was voluntarily assisting 
Senator Kennedy while the labor bill was under consideration. Secretary of Labor James Mitchell, Senator McClellan, and Andrew B. Miller representing the FLCIO. In 1958, Mitchell opposed passage of the Kennedy-Ives bill. Now, in 1959, Kennedy was pressing again for a labor bill. Kennedy was prepared for Mitchell's testimony 15 minutes before Mitchell's statement concluded, which supported the administration labor reform bill S-740A. A copy of Kennedy's reply was being handed out in the subcommittee room despite it being clearly marked for release upon the conclusion of testimony. At the end of Mitchell's testimony, Kennedy began questioning some of the provisions of the administration bill. He claimed the bill would punish honest locals by depriving them of National Labor Relations Board services as a result of the dishonesty of individual officials of the locals. Neither Mitchell R. Stewart Rothman, Labor Department legal aide, could argue that Kennedy was wrong and admitted that Kennedy might be right. When Kennedy quoted a section of the bill, Rothman could not find it and Mitchell asked for a recess to go over the bill, showing Kennedy knew the bill better than its spokesperson. The bill was modified by the subcommittee based on testimony and recommendations it had received to which strengthened the bill. Eventually, no further agreement could be reached. Kennedy suggested the bill be moved to the full committee for further consideration. Senator Morse made a motion to that effect. Those for the bill felt they had nothing to lose, having a majority and sympathy for the bill in the full house. Tempers were growing, and they felt it was best to prevent hostile feelings with those who opposed the bill. Goldwater did not oppose the suggestion. Possibly he felt he could gain more support in the full committee, or he realized the majority opposed further changes at that time. The committee then considered the bill now known as S-1555 and a number of substantial changes were made. Senator Goldwater and Dirksen took credit for those changes in the minority report, which they filed as the lone dissenters in a final 13-2 to 2 committee vote to report the bill to the Senate. The changes are 1. Exclusion from union office for failure to file information required by the bill. 2. Stricter reporting of union salaries and other disbursements past conflicts of interest and any loans to officers and employees. 3. Stricter reporting requirements of unions, disciplining, fining, and suspensions. 4. Weaker requirements for employer reports under the Act. 5. Provisions that the Act would not preempt rights of states to punish the same offenses under state laws. They fully intended to seek further amendments on the Senate floor. Senator Prouty sympathized with them, but voted in favor of reporting the bill, believing it was the only way to assure some labor legislation during the current session. Majority Leader Johnson, in March, suggested to Minority Leader Dirksen that the committee delay reporting the bill until the House acted on labor reform. Johnson 
thought the House would kill the bill as they had to the labor reform bills in 1958. He also felt sidetracking this bill would have deflate Kennedy's prestige and hope for winning the nomination for the presidency. Dirksen proposed the delay to the committee, but it was rejected. The committee agreed to delay consideration of the controversial Taft-Hartley amendments. Proposals sure to bring on long and bitter debate that would likely kill the labor reform bill. The Democrats suggested a 12-man blue ribbon panel of labor law experts under the chairmanship of Professor Cox, charged with studying amendments to the Taft-Hartley and submit recommendations to the Senate later in the session. Debate began on April 16, 1959. More than 100 amendments were already awaiting in the upper house and many yet to be introduced. Time was a major consideration on which amendments would be heard and who would speak. The first to speak was Senator Urban, co-sponsor of the bill. He went with the candy plan of separating the bill from the Taft-Hartley amendments contained in Title VI. They were considered generally as pro-labor. Goldwater and McClellan endorsed Urban's amendment, McClellan promising not to propose controversial amendments to the Taft-Hartley Act for inclusion in the Kennedy-Urban Bill if Kennedy would agree to drop Title VI. Senator Carl Munt, Republican of South Dakota, Vice Chairman of the Senate Rackets Committee, then spoke for an hour in support of Urban's amendment and the debate was continued on April 21st. Goldwater had the floor next. He threatened that days and days of debate would be consumed in discussing other Taft-Hartley amendments, unless Title VI was dropped from the bill. He wanted Kennedy to wait for the Blue Ribbon Committee recommendations regarding the Taft-Hartley amendments and told him so. Kennedy replied that he could not, in any case, bind the Senate not to consider other amendments to Taft-Hartley when it pleased. Senator Jacob Jabbitz, Republican, New York, spoke in support of Kennedy's position and claimed that Title VI provisions regarding the building and construction trade workers, no man's land, and the problem of economic strikers voting rights in representation elections had to be dealt with in the present bill. Senator John Cooper, Republican of Kentucky, a minority member of the Senate Committee on Labor and Public Welfare, also spoke for Kennedy's position, while Democrat Senator Weish and Smatters of Ohio and Florida, respectively, spoke briefly on behalf of the Urban Amendment. After an interruption, the majority whip proposed limitation of further debate on the amendment to 20 minutes, which was adopted unanimously. Speaking in conclusion, Senator Urban said he believed the Candy-Ives bill was defeated because of the unimportant Taft-Hartley amendments in it. Kennedy concluded his argument by pointing out that Secretary of Labor Mitchell himself suggested the topics in Title VI. A roll call vote resulted in 27 yeas and 67 nays, defeating the Urban Amendment. Senator Dirksen started another debate by proposing a substitute for Title VI of the Kennedy 
Urban Bill by taking exact wording from Title Five of the Administration Bill. Johnson consulted with Dirksen and Goldwater, proposed a two-hour limitation on the debate of the Dirksen Amendment, which limitation was approved. Goldwater explained that the Dirksen Amendment included other Taft-Hartley amendments in addition to some of those in Title VI and would obviate necessity for further Taft-Hartley amendments. A reversal of his position that the Senate wait for the Blue Ribbon Committee recommendations. Kennedy, speaking against the Dirksen Amendment, warned that under Senate rules, further amendments could not be considered dealing with the topics contained in the administration bill substitute for Title VI of his bill. The vote proved lopsided for Kennedy, 21 in favor of the Dirksen Amendment to 67 opposed. Goldwater offered a minor amendment regarding the definition of a union officer, but the debate was continued to the next day. The next day, McClellan submitted several amendments to the Kennedy Urban Bill, which were ordered to lie on the table and be printed, and the Senate resumed consideration of the Goldwater Union Officer Amendment. There was no quorum. The vote was 2-4-0 against. Kennedy returned to the chamber at this time, and Goldwater asked that the vote be reconsidered, and Kennedy and Goldwater had a heated debate. Kennedy and Goldwater talked, and Kennedy proposed a new definition, which was approved. Senator McClellan introduced his Bill of Rights amendment. McClellan and Kennedy were good friends, but Goldwater knew that any hope to get serious stiffeners into the law in the Kennedy Urban Labor Bill would have to have the support of McClellan, who had enormous prestige in the field of labor reform as a result of his Rackets Committee hearings. Goldwater persuaded McClellan that he would have to fight Kennedy on this issue. Part of that persuasion was in the form of pressure by business groups whom Goldwater induced to bombard McClellan with letters. After a two-hour speech to the Senate in which he spelled out the drastic need for stiff labor reform legislation, this brought up for the first time a serious departure from previous federal legislation action in the labor area. McClellan's Bill of Rights put the federal government in the middle as a regulator of internal union affairs. Before this federal legislation affecting labor management relations had confined itself to regulating the conduct of relations between management and labor. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.